0: You know, today, we're going to continue this sermon series, Fixed and Free. I hope you're enjoying it. But I hope it's also causing you to think and causing you to stretch a little bit because, you know, the United Methodist Church has been in the midst of a lot of decisions um, to be made. We've got a commission called a way forward working on these decisions, and the bishops will be bringing a, a, a resolution to a general conference concerning our future as United Methodists. So that's what we've been talking about. And, you know, we've been talking, too, about we're a people of a, temp- a, a temple and a tabernacle. And, and we've talked about how the temple is more fixed, and it's biblical, and the tabernacle is more free, and it's biblical. And, and therefore, from the Bible, we can get varying views of theology and We as a people struggle with that and that's why there's so many denominations, I guess. So many divisions. But the thing I like about United Methodists, the people of the temple and the tabernacle, is we're also a people of one big tent. And this big tent is one where our theological definitions are more eclectic, not all the same, not homogenous. And that's what I love about the United Methodist Church. And the larger the church in general, the more eclectic and the more different the congregation is. And I can assure you, because I've been doing this here for 20 years, that we have people uh, on the far right and the far left and and everybody in the middle, and we don't see things together uh, alike um, socially, theologically, um, politically. I mean, we're just different. So when you tread into these matters in a church like ours, you tread prayerfully. But you have to tread faithfully and honestly. You know, under our big tent, we have those who are traditionalists. We've been talking about this. They are those who hold that the covenant is what brings us together. And the discipline, the book of discipline that is our law, is our covenant center and so every four years we debate the discipline, we rewrite the discipline and that becomes our law for the next four years. And then there are progressives in our church and these are people who um, believe that justice should be the driver and that we should uplift our social holiness aspect of John Wesley and that justice should be about, uh, be what we're always about and making sure that our love is extended to all the world in a just and merciful way. And then there are those who are centrists, who hold to unity as being that which unites us, okay? And, and that this tent is big enough for all kinds, thank you, all kinds of, uh, of persuasions theologically. And, and we're, we're, we're under this big tent that, that we really like. And so in these three persuasions, there are those on the far left who say if the book of discipline is not changed, and if we don't do away with some of this language that is so hurtful, then we may just find us another tent. And there are those on the far right and say if the discipline is changed, and if our bishops and those in authority don't uphold the bishop, then we may find us another tent And the centrists are saying, oh, don't leave the tent. We like the tent the way it is as far as getting together. We know that we need to bring some changes about. but, But unity has got to be what God wants for us as a church. Now, you might ask, is there anything fixed related to United Methodism? Is there anything that we hold in common? Is there a center To us, and I want to say, yes, there is. You know, Kenan's not here today. Um, His family's been under the weather and he's been the head nurse in the house. But on Tuesday, he's supposed to report to the Board of Ordained Ministry, on which I serve, and I chair the theology room, and Kay Eck is also in the theology room. And Kenan will be there, and Sarah Lugan Bill will be there on Monday, and Jonathan Bryant will be there on Monday. And next month, it'll be Scott and Reagan coming before the Board of Verdane Ministry. And we'll hear all kinds of theological um, persuasions, and we'll push them to defend their paperwork. And, And we'll also ask them a question that they have to get right. And that is, what are our doctrinal standards, and how will you teach them to your congregation? And and so those doctrinal standards that we're not going to go into today, but there are the Articles of Religion of the Methodist Church, that's one, the Confession of Faith of the Evangelical United Brethren Church. Now, it was that the Articles and the Confession that came together in 1968, and guess what it formed? From the Evangelical United Brethren and the Methodist. it formed the United Methodists. And instead of picking one over the other, they just picked both the confession from the EUBs and the articles from the Methodists and Wesley's sermons, that's another doctrinal standard and the explanatory notes on the New Testament, that's another doctrinal standard and the general rules. Now I am going to teach you the general rules today. The general rules of a Methodist, here they are. You can test yourself to see if you're a Methodist. Do no harm avoiding all kinds of evil. Number two, there are just three. Do good of every possible sort as far as possible to all. And the third one, stay in love with God or more classically stated, practice the ordinances of God. And engage in individual and communal spiritual practices. So, here's a little test. Here are the answers. The three general rules. Do no harm. Do good. Stay in love with God. Can you say that with me? What are the general rules? Do no harm. Do good. Stay in love with God. You're all passing. You're welcome. You know, I'd add to that. I'd add to that the divinity of Christ, and the historical creeds, Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, because the creeds center us not only as a denomination, but they connect us to the larger Christian church. So regarding these practices in this big tent, there's also an essential pole that holds this big tent up high so that all of us can get under it. And that's God's grace in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Big tent has to have a grace pole that holds the tent up. And for us as United Methodists, it's staked with the articles of religion and the confession and the Wesley's uh, sermons and the explanatory notes and the general rules that that tether this big tent around this pole of grace and keeps this tent high enough for all of us to get under. Are you clear on that? I want us to read today from Acts, the 15th chapter, this centering verse, and then I want to tell you a story, and then we're going to be done. But last week we talked about Cornelius in here, right? And we talked about how Peter... And Cornelius, the centurion, the Gentile, both got visions from God, right? That brought them together. And and Peter shared with Cornelius. And they developed this relationship through their sharing of these visions. How God had brought them together. And Cornelius was filled with the Spirit. And everyone in his house was filled with the Spirit. And so Peter baptized all of them. Gentiles who violated Scripture because they weren't circumcised and they didn't practice the dietary codes and they didn't see the Sabbath as any other special day and all kinds of things, but the Holy Spirit baptized them. And so today we're we're going to be talking about what what happened because of what Peter did with Cornelius and what Paul and Barnabas were doing on their missionary journeys, uh, bringing... Bringing uh, Gentiles to faith, and so here you got a problem, and the church has to make a decision: Are we going to be a, a church of one tent? Or are we going to be a church of of two tents—a Jewish-Christian tent and a Gentile-Christian tent—and we don't have to see each other or like each other or talk to each other? And so be it. Thanks be to God. So I want us to um, look at the screens. And I want to read from the 15th chapter of Acts, which is the Jerusalem Council. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after um, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message and the good news... And become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Just as God did for us. Same Holy Spirit. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, He has made no distinction between them and us. We're the same. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples the yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? What is the yoke? The law. What's in Scripture that we can't ab- 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 adhere to? It, it, it's too heavy. And on the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will be saved. And the whole assembly kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people in his name. This agrees with the words of the prophet as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles, over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore I have reached the decision that we should not trouble these Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. Now, there was temple worship going on and there was temple prostitution going on and so James said you know all these other laws you don't have to worry about but you need to adhere to these things that I say abstain from for in every city for generations past Moses has had those who proclaim him for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues this is the word of God for the people of God thanks be to god you see this big tent thought is nothing new is it i mean since the very beginning the church has been deciding you know who's in and who's out really And so we have this council uh, that that unfolds before us, this council of Jerusalem. And, And you have here those who are on the far right who are saying, you know, we need to worry about what it looks like out there. We need to be a people who are defined by our law. We need to be circumcised. We need to adhere to the dietary laws. We need to worship on the Sabbath, dot, dot, dot. And then you have a progressive like Peter, Paul, and Barnabas who say, you know, we got to tell you what we've witnessed. We've witnessed the Holy Spirit baptizing those who are Gentiles, who aren't under the law. And we think they should be in. And then you have James, who's somewhat of a centrist, who hears all of this and makes this wise decision. We're going to be a people of one tent, because we have one baptism, one faith, one Lord. And, And this tent can be big enough for those who are of a... Jewish Christian background and those who are, are Gentile Christians. We can be together. You know, last week I asked you a question. Remember, I said, who, is, who are your Gentiles? Do you remember that? Who are your Gentiles? I got another question. Who is your Cornelius? Who is the one who's come into your life, and because of your relationship with her or him, you see things differently than you did before? Just like Peter in his relationship with Cornelius. Friends, I have an answer to that for me. And, and I want to share it with you this morning. And I, I hope you'll hear it as coming from the heart of your pastor. Not preaching at you about what you should believe or what you should um, adhere to. I want to share with you my heart. I want to share with you my Cornelius. You know, on the eve of General Conference 2016, which has been 16, 18 months ago, there was a wedding in Columbus, Georgia, or Columbus, Ohio, not Columbus, Georgia. And in Columbus, Ohio, there were two men who were married. One was a United Methodist pastor. And it was in a United Methodist church. And there were United Methodist pastors who participated. So so it broke all kinds of laws and holy hell broke loose at General Conference. Because everybody went to General Conference knowing what was in the papers in Columbus and knowing what had happened and what are we going to do? We've got this obvious violation. What are we going to do? The pastor involved's name was David Meredith. Now, when I went to seminary in Kansas City, Tammy and I had been married for two weeks. What a honeymoon, seminary! <laughs> and um, we'd been educated within about a hundred miles of the house, and we decided we'd go north, five hundred miles to Kansas City, and there we were uh, in a strange land and meeting new friends. We were all young. We were all pursuing ordination as United Methodist pastors. We all had a call on our life from God. And, And we could share that call, but I I found out in seminary how big the tent was, how huge the tent was, because there was some theology that I'm telling you, I wondered if some people were Christian. But there was this one guy, David, who I resonated with. He was kind of orthodox like me, even though he was from Ohio and I was from East Texas. I mean, we, we kind of talked the same theological language, and he had this amazing social action bent uh, that was Wesleyan holiness that I just loved too, and, and, and that was all uh, coupled with a more conservative theology that was about bringing people to Christ and making disciples, which I loved too. And David was so full of the Lord, I mean, he had this joy in his heart that came out all over his face, big bearded face, and, you know, and to make matters worse, David was extremely brilliant, and so he was the teacher's pet in all of our classes. And we didn't hate him for that, but it did make us mad. And I remember we had this tight group of friends, you know, David and I had some friends that were all part of this little group and a little clique kind of deal. And, you know, we studied together. We socialized together. And, you know, we were right and everybody else was wrong. And it was good. And then David and Carol, I mean, they, they had something going on. And, and we were excited because it looked like a romance was brewing, right? And, and um, they were getting serious and that was pretty obvious. And then something happened. David became real clear about his sexuality and it was painful. Here he was called and in the midst of seminary and trying to be somebody who wasn't sexually. And we loved Carol and we loved David in the midst of that and it was painful before it was ever freeing for David. He graduated Top of the class. He was ordained. Because you can be ordained and be a homosexual, you just can't practice, (laughs) according to the discipline. And for 30, Five years, I've watched the ministry of David Meredith and how it has flourished. Every church he's been in have seen to love him. The social agencies that he was the, um, uh, the appointed pastor of just thrived. I mean, everything was so good in David's ministry as we knew it would be. And so I've been struggling for these years now with this question. Was David called The ordained ministry in the United Methodist Church? I mean, really? Because there's only really three answers as I can see it. Either David was not called. He just misunderstood God. God didn't call him at all. And then he went to seminary, but that was kind of on his own. And that joy in his heart must be coming from somebody else because God didn't call him into ministry. Or, this is the one I really like, that God was just as surprised when David came out as David was. Can you surprise God? Or, David called, or God called David before David knew he was gay. God knew it, but David didn't know it yet, really. And if that's the answer, then we have to say that God called David even though, or because of. Or maybe that just didn't matter to God, really. Well, some years later, David fell in love with a guy named Jim. And what makes matters real amusing, is that David and Jim and Tammy and I and four other couples, we vacationed together for 10 years. We'd meet one week out of the summer and we'd all get together and we'd share our stories about ministry and we'd share life together and kids started coming along and that made things interesting too. And and, and we just shared our heart for a week. We just caught up. 10 years! And the last time we got together it was kind of a sparse crowd because for various sundry reasons everybody um, had uh, things they had to do that kept them from coming to the party and Jim and David were they were hosting it that year it was in Michigan on a little lake called Walloon and so Tammy and I were there with Zach and our Emily and David and Jim and we had a blast And so I got invited Tammy and I their wedding and and I have to say that it made me a little uncomfortable because I knew it was going to be a violation and I knew holy hell would break loose I knew I knew I knew I knew but we loved David and Jim and we decided to go Our other friends couldn't go except for Carol. <laughs> so, as David and Jim, and in the balcony of that old historic downtown church that was packed to overflowing, only standing room in the room with 75 pastors, United Methodist pastors in the room, was Tammy and Carol and me. And I, I just ask you from my heart what would you have done? What would you have done if you've witnessed what I've witnessed for 30, nearly 35 years? Now, some of you would have said, I, I wouldn't go. And that'd be okay. You know, that would be so right. If your convictions would have had to say no to that, what's wrong with that? we got a big tent. Really? Really? And some of you would have said yes a lot quicker than Tammy and I did, and that would be okay too. That'd be right too, because your convictions wouldn't even let you think otherwise. But what I've got to say is that when you've seen the Holy Spirit work in a life and changes done to hearts of people through the ministry of another, and you've seen love develop and a relationship develop, and and you've had to believe the Holy Spirit's been involved in that. It changes things. I, I wish that we would turn our attention to the Cornelius's in our lives, in our families, in our offices, our colleagues. Because Cornelius was to Peter. What Lydia and those women by the creek were to Paul and Barnabas or Silas. And what Jesus is to each and every one of us. Because just as grace is for all, we're all sinners. All of us are only close to God because of the Holy Spirit revealing to us grace. And if that's not good news that we're called to take to the world, I'm in, I'm in the wrong business. I've had it wrong for a long time. It is grace that holds the tent up. And this tent... If we'll let the Holy Spirit, we'll allow the Holy Spirit to work. This tent, I don't know what the answer is, but this tent will be big enough. Amen.